invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to Matthew chapter 5, 8, 10, again, if you need that in the red Bible in front of you in the pews. Tracing your ancestry, your family ancestry has become a big thing, billions of dollars actually big. My family traced our family tree back a number of years ago while my dad was still alive and found out my dad always thought we were part Indian. I'm not sure why, but we weren't. And we pretty much found out we're mostly like a large percent, like 60-some percent Scottish. And so I made a little phrase up, if you're not a Scot, you're not a lot. Um, And we're also a little bit of Irish and a number of other things. But it's interesting, it tells you who's in your family, your DNA, it marks you off really a little bit. In some of those ways, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' spiritual DNA test. That is, for all of us, if you really want to know if you're his disciple, you'll see what it looks like as you read through Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And what I would tell you, and Jesus, I think, would say, and he did in this sermon, was that real Christians, Bible Christians, here's what's true of them, here's what's part of their DNA. They are different. It's part of who we are. It's part of our identity. In fact, so much so that 14 times, it's quite a few, in this brief text in Matthew 5 through 7, it says your heavenly father or your father who is in heaven. And the idea is this is how you know that you are his son or his daughter. So if you're in God's family, i.e. also you're in God's kingdom, this is what your life will look like. Not perfectly but a pattern of it. So if you know God, you will be like his son. But how does that likeness take place? And I would tell you this morning that it is an inside-out likeness. It is a whole person kind of discipleship. It's not outside only, it's from the inside out. And this truth is so pivotal and absolutely crucial that Jesus says in our text... In verse 20, the last line, that if you don't have the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, if you only have external but nothing from the inside out, you will not enter the kingdom. That's strong. There's a bracket in our text that begins in verse 20 that I just mentioned. You won't enter the kingdom. But Jesus wants to get our attention, so he says it a second time at the end of his sermon. So he introduces it with this thought, and he closes with this thought, because everything in between shows you how the reality of that thought works. And so again, it says in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. So entering the kingdom, being saved, being a child of God, a son of God, being one of his disciples, it may not be exactly what you think. In fact, Jesus would say it's more than you think. It's more in this sense that it has to exceed what the Pharisees and the scribes think. It has to be more than the people who call me Lord, Lord, which would be a lot of professing people. So Jesus says not only those two brackets, but he also in each one of those brackets puts a double negative. And I'm going to point them out to you today. And just for your own sake, you know, help me. I'm just going to get past the technicality part, the technicality part of it. And that is it's the strongest way that you can say anything negative. And Jesus says it in our text. You will never, ever enter into the kingdom 
So the Sermon on the Mount is not about how to get into the kingdom. It's how to tell and differentiate between those who are and those who are not. And Jesus says, here's one defining mark. Ready? You will be different. Not odd different. Christians are not different in the sense that we don't go to the mall and shop or we don't have fast food occasionally. Too often, actually. It's not that we don't wear jeans. The difference is not an odd difference. It's a God difference. It's how our life is like God and who he is and his nature that it flows out and comes out in our life. It's not what we appear to be that makes the difference. It's what we are that makes the difference. It's an inside-out difference. And in the text, let me show you verses 13 through 20, that difference shows up primarily in two defining relationships. And we'll unpack them one at a time. The first one is this in verses 13 through 16. Jesus' disciples are different than the world. Jesus starts off in verses 13 and 14 with these two identifying statements. He says, you are, see it there? It begins verse 13. You are, verse 13. You are, verse 14. This is who you are. If you're part of my kingdom, if you're part of my family, here's your identity. You are the salt of the earth. Number one. Number two, you are the light of the world. And notice, notice that those two words can be summed up with this one word, influence. Influence. My disciples, my family members, in the world in which they live have kingdom influence. How do they have that influence? They are influencing by being salt. They influence by being light. They are salt in the earth and they are, salt in, they are light in the world And notice, the worth of salt and the impact of light is based on its distinctiveness. You put salt on food that might rot because you want to preserve it. Light immediately exposes and illuminates darkness. They cannot be the same, right? So what salt does is it preserves and fights against not with or become like the rottenness or decay. Light does not become darkness or like darkness, right? It exposes the darkness. That's what Christians are to be. That's what you and I are to be. We are to be salt and light in our world. Everything salt touches, it impacts. That's you and me. See, everything you touch in this world, everything that you have an influence should be made better. You put salt on the corn on the cob, it's better, right? You put salt, I can't think of hardly anything you can't put salt on that doesn't make it better. See, you and your job, you work where you work and that you're an employee there should make that place better, See, in the neighborhood in which you live, and when you touch people's lives and influence lives in your neighborhood, your neighborhood should be better because you are there in that place. See, the Bible says that we should be salt and we should be light. We should make a difference and impact our coworkers. When they see our marriages, they should see something different. They should say, oh, That's how a husband treats his wife. Oh, that's how a wife responds to her husband. They should say, oh, wow, you don't do this, but you do do this. I can't believe, how many times do you go to church? See, they see this in our lives. We entertain ourselves differently. 
It's not that we don't watch movies or we don't have televisions. No, but we're very careful what we watch and what influences us. You know why? Because from the inside out, we are different in our lives. In fact, we would say this, influence can be defined, we make a difference by being different. And so as Christians, salt and light, here's one facet of it. We are attracted to the world, not so that we can become worldly, so that we can change the world. Salt is put in the meat. So we have to be in there. We have to be in there with our neighbors, in there with our coworkers. And amidst the decay of the things going on in our world, we're different inside. We don't sit back in church and get behind God's walls and never get out amongst lost people. That's not what salt does. Salt has no impact if it stays in the salt shaker. See, we have to get out there with the 80% of the people who are not here today and be salt in their lives. And when their lives and their relationships and their marriages and their finances and their health is falling apart, we impact them and influence them and we make a difference. We shine the light into their darkness. But it's not only individuals. The Bible is very clear that this is what churches do, communities do. And you can't see it in the English readily. But in verses 13 and 14, those two little identity statements, you are, you are, they're not singular pronouns, they're plural And that's no surprise if you read the original text because the pronouns in verses 11 and 12 are also plural. And it's leading us into the understanding of verses 13 and 14. Here's how. Because please please teenagers, above all, please listen to this. If you are salt and light and you are different than everybody else, which by the way is hardly popular today. Everybody wants to blend in, be like everybody else. They want to fit in. They don't want to stand out. They want to just be what everybody else is. And our teenagers probably, maybe above all else, struggle with this at school. I don't want to be the one who isn't dressed like this and wear that and have that music and go to those parties and talk like that. They they want to be like everyone else. But Jesus is very clear that if you're my kingdom and you're my family, you must be willing to be different. Not odd different, God different. And, And listen, and when that happens, here's what he says in verses 11 and 12. When you are different... For righteousness' sake, guess what? You will be, here's the words, sometimes they will revile you. Sometimes they will persecute you. And at times they will say all kinds of evil, blaspheme you for my sake. So if you're a Christian and you stand up for God, guess what's going to happen? It won't be popular and it won't be acceptable. And you may be ostracized at your school. You may not get on the team and high up advances you think you're going to get. And then you might not get the grade you thought you were going to get in your class because you believe in creation and not evolution. It's possible that those things could take place at your job. You may not get the promotion. You may not move up the corporate ladder. You may not have the success that other people do. And at your school and at your job, they may call you names, bigoted, intolerant, anti-intellectual, homophobic. And those are terms that people will use of you. And here's what Jesus says. The pronouns are plural. You know why that matters? Because you can't face all that stress and tension and pressure by yourself. You know what church is for? Yes, it is to worship God vertically. But when we come to church, we need to share with each other and love each other and pray with each other. You know why? Because there are teenagers who don't know if they can do another week of that. And there are people who go to their job and say, you know what? I'd rather just quit and do something else. You know why? Because all I get is grief. And they need to have a place, i.e. the church, where they can come and say, you know how we we get through it together. You know when Peter was released from prison, what's the first thing he did? 
he went and found the church. And they were praying for him. They entered into his problems. And people, when they come to church, need to know other people go through what I go through. And other people are standing for Jesus. And they need to come to a youth group where there are other kids who are sold out for God and said, hey, I know, I went through the same thing today. Let's you and I pray together. Wouldn't it be great if that's the kind of a youth group and church we have? We are a different people. We are a different community. Salt of the earth, light of the world. But don't miss the next identity marker. We are a city set on a hill. Do you know what that means? We are a people within a people. We are a Hamilton within a Hamilton. We are. We are a city within a city. There's a city around us, and they have these values and priorities and ethics and morals. And then inside that city, there's the city of Faith Baptist Church. And it's different than any other city. This is a city set on a hill so that you can see it and you can observe it and you can look at it and say, oh, that's what society should look like. That's what relationships are to be. Oh, that's how people are to treat one another when they disagree. Oh, that's how it looks. We are the community of the king. We are an alternative Hamilton. And Mosaic is an alternative Trenton. And when people come to church, it ought to be a place where money and stuff are not idols. Where outer beauty is not what matters most. It ought to be a place where people aren't racist and sex isn't out of control. And love is the foundation of all relationships. And that people here think the best of others, not the worst about others right off the bat. See, it's a place, this alternative city, city where we have all the same kinds of people that are out there in the other city. We have the black and the white and the young and the old and the rich and the poor. That ought to all be true, and thank God it is. We're blessed. We have all the kinds of people that are out there, but we also have different kinds of people in here. They may look like the people out there, but in here, oh, they're so different in that city. So different. And that's why we need this city, because sometimes when you stand up for Christ... You get persecuted and reviled and blasphemed. But praise God, there's the other part of this text. And in verse 16, it says, Let your light so shine before men. Listen, that they may see your good works, listen, and glorify your Father. See, there are times when people look at our city and look at the different kind of people they are, and they will mock us and they will hate us and they won't receive or accept it. But there are times... When people observe you and the good works that you have and the life that you have that is different that they can't quite figure out. And you know what they do? They'll see it and they'll say, I want that. Let me glorify the God who is in heaven. See, that's what we want. We want an alternative world that people can turn to, that they'll be attracted to, that they look at, and I call it gospel goodness. Your good works. But see, gospel goodness is not like any other kind of goodness. It is a kind of goodness that you hear in a message, but that you see with your eyes. This isn't just something we spout out from the pulpit or preach to others and think that we've done a great job of evangelizing. Jesus says, let them see your good works. Let them see it how you respond when you don't get the promotion even though you deserved it. Let them see it in the way that when their boss or your coach or your teacher maligns you. Let them see how you respond and see the difference. That's not what I thought they would say. That's not what I thought they would do. 
Mahatma Gandhi once said, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That's an indictment. What they ought to see in you and me, in the world and in the earth, as we are salt and light, what they ought to see is good works, gospel goodness. This gospel goodness, can I say it also, is different than pharisaical goodness. The only other time in the Sermon on the Mount with a little phrase, before men, is used. It's used in our text, in verse 16. They may see your good works and, and you do them before men. The other time is chapter 6 and verse 1. And Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And the truthfully, it's to be seen before men. It's the phrase in our text. In other words, there's a kind of goodness that people do in front of other people at work and at school, and they do it not because it's real in their life, because they want you to think this of them. They want to appear that this is how they really are. That's not what makes us different. Not a shallow, pretentious, fake, phony goodness that isn't real of your life most of the time. No, the difference between that and gospel goodness is this is who you are because you know your identity is in Christ and that salt and light is what you are all the time, Jesus says. That's real gospel goodness. It's a goodness that isn't just seen by men, period, and I'm done because that's the aim of it. I just want you to think good things of me. No, this is a goodness that is seen by men, but it's not the point. The point is that it's most of all seen by my heavenly Father. And that's who I'm really out to please. That's who I care about the most. Gospel goodness points to God, not to ourselves. Is that you? Is that us? How are we doing on that? Jesus would say, the spiritual DNA of my children and disciples in my kingdom is that they are different. Number one, in relationship to the world. Secondly, and maybe more difficult is Jesus' disciples are different in relationship to religion. Verses 17 through 20. There is a phrase that also is a bracket in this text, and it's found in verse 17. Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish, and here it is, the law or the prophets. That little phrase in 517 is repeated in chapter 7 and verse 12. And in between there, Jesus is going to tell you, I know that this is what you read in the text of the Law and the Prophets. This is what Torah and Moses and the prophets say. He says, but I'm going to tell you that the true intent, and the word he's going to use, the fulfillment of it, is this. Five times in Matthew 1 and 2, Jesus says, this is the scripture and I fulfill it. And it was all about his birth when he was born in Bethlehem and he raised in Judea and he went to Galilee and he went out of Egypt and came back. And all of those five references in one and two, all those scripture quotations are fulfilled in Jesus. They point to Jesus. The true intention of them, not that they didn't have historical value, not that they weren't real in his day, but the fulfillment, what those scriptures were pointing to at its completion was Jesus. It happens two more times before our text. Once at the baptism in chapter 3, and once when Jesus starts his Galilean ministry in chapter 4, and it quotes a scripture and says, and now we fulfill this. So when we get to our text, and Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. What is he saying? He wants to tell them, listen, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to show you how to really live it. 
what its true intent was. When Moses said this, I want you to know it's more than that. It's deeper than that. It gets into the heart of who you are. And so three times, three times in our text, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus says, about your heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Not just ceremonially pure, not just Levitically pure, but pure in here. Blessed are the pure in heart, Matthew 5, 8, for they shall see God. You want to stand in God's presence and be with him for eternity? You must have an inner holiness, he says. He says, you know what Moses says in Matthew 5, 28? If you commit adultery with a woman that you have defiled, you know what he says? It's not just the physical act. It's if you lust after her in your heart. You've broken that commandment. So it's not just enough to keep yourself from adulterous actions. It's adulterous attitudes and appetites that you must also keep yourself from if you really want to live the true intent of the law and the prophets. Jesus is so strong in this text twice. I'm going to give you both. The first one is about the law and the prophets. He says, listen, I am not going to abolish it. Not one iota, one one not dot, or one little flip of your pen on the end of a letter, which changes the whole meaning of the word. That's what the iota is. It's a little flip like this. You can barely see it if you're reading it. But that little flip changes the entire word and its meaning. He says, I am so detailed about fulfilling and completing all of the story of Israel. I'm not leaving any part of it out, he says. My birth, my life, my ministry, my death, this is what it was meaning. This is what the true intent was. And you know what the true intent is? If you're in my story, I'm not just doing all this stuff on the outside. It's what you are on the inside. Jesus says, you know where your treasure is? It's your treasure and your heart go together. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, 621. He wants us to have an inside-out righteousness, a heart-level righteousness. Please look at me. I want to show you what it looks like. In Matthew 1.19, the Bible says this of Joseph, who was the earthly father of Jesus. He was engaged, betrothed to Mary, and it says this description of him, identity marker. Joseph was a just, ESV, Original language, righteous man. He was righteous. What kind of righteousness? Not a scribe and Pharisee, external only righteousness. He had an inner righteousness. And let me show you what it looks like. Mary, who was his betrothed, which was the same as being married, but they didn't live together. They weren't having relationships sexually together, but they were committed to each other. It was like marriage without living together. Joseph had gone home for a year to get another house or room built onto his dad's house so that they could move in. And he would come back for her. Her only job was to remain faithful to him the whole time. When he finds out that Mary is pregnant, it would have blown his world apart. He doesn't know anything about the Holy Spirit and all that goes with that story yet. So according to the law and prophets, he can have Mary under a trial. She has to drink these bitter herbs. And if she drinks it and things happen, you can read it for yourself in Leviticus, she is shown to be guilty then he can have her condemned. They rip her clothes and she walks beside all the ladies in the, in the community and they spit on her and mock her and they take her outside the city. They dig a hole, put her in it and stone her to death. That's what he could do. And in doing all of that, he would have been right before God because it was part of the law to do. But Joseph is a righteous man. What does that mean? 
It means that two words in the Greek, in your English, look at it. He was unwilling to put her to shame. Here's what he didn't want to do. She had, according to his knowledge, she had shamed him publicly. He would not do that to her. He was going to put her away privately. See, what she had done publicly, he would put away privately. She had hurt him deeply. He would help her deeply. She deserved to die. He would save her life. She would give him her worst. He would return it with his best. You see how that works? Unwilling to put her to shame. And he was devoted, it says, to putting her away privately. He wasn't going to bring her in front of the city. He wasn't going to make an object lesson of her. He wasn't, even though he might have felt like it, he wasn't going to say, well, you did this to me. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. You're going to regret the day like you and I do. When someone at work hurts you or someone at church says something about you and you don't like it. You know what our natural tendency is? They're going to get it. I'm going to give them the law. I'm going to give them everything they deserve. You're going to be punished. But you know what righteousness does? Inside out righteousness does? It says, I know what the law says. But I know what love does. So he didn't do any of those things. He didn't make her drink the bitter. He didn't make her go before the council. He didn't embarrass her in front of all the women. He didn't even divorce her publicly. He put her away. He was going to put her away. And then it says this. And as he considered these things, and the Greek is a compound word, and the middle verb inside of it is thumos, and it means angry. He's thinking about this, and as he's sitting there, he's very intensely emotional, is the word. He's upset by it all, and he knows in his heart, I don't want to see her go through any of this. I don't really know what I should do, but here's what I think I need to do because I love her so much. And then God sends the angel and tells him what's really happening. And as soon as he hears that, it says he got up and went right to her. See, that's righteousness. Righteousness says what I know of the law in my heart, I want to obey it, and at the same time, I want to show love to people around me. That's righteousness the Jesus way. That's what disciples of Christ look like. They're not trying to get back at people. They're not bitter and angry and take revenge. They don't think the worst things all at once. There's something different going on on the inside. So may I say this morning, please, don't confuse Christianity with religion. Christianity is not about just coming to church services as if they are some sort of meetings that we attend. They are not about, it's not just about knowing Bible facts and stories, although information is crucial. It's not just about putting money in the offering plate while inside we are greedy for things of this world and hold on to all other things as more important than God. It's not about being moral externally by being filling with lust and ungodliness, and perversion on the inside. It's not about trying to be as good as you can, not letting everyone else know that you're as bad as you almost can on the inside. It's deeper. See, righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount is a changed heart that produces a changed behavior. Jesus said, that's what my disciples are like. That's what my family members are like. You know why? Because that's what my father is like. You see, how important is all of this? 
Jesus said, if you don't have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, and they only had an external one. And listen, when he said that, people would have been blown away because scribes and Pharisees were extra, extra holy people. They were the righteous untouchables. And if you thought you could be a Pharisee, you are mistaken because nobody surpassed them in external righteousness and purity. They were meticulous when it came to the law, and there are very few people like them. And when Jesus says they don't cut it, that their righteousness isn't going to enter the kingdom and you can't be like them and enter, people would go, are you kidding? Then is it possible? And Jesus would say, yes, you have to exceed it. You have to have a righteousness that goes beyond that. And you know what he meant? He meant you have to have a righteousness that goes beyond the external and inside your life. A righteousness that only Jesus can give you and only the Heavenly Father can help you maintain and live. That's the kind of righteousness that you need to have. And this kind of righteousness is not optional. It's not just for a few elite spiritual supercharged disciples. No, it is the difference between entering the kingdom and not getting in, he says. So let me go back to where we began. Do you have the spiritual DNA? Do you have what marks out what it means to be a son of God, living God? Do you have what it means to have the traits of a disciple of Jesus, the characteristics of, the Jesus, of Jesus? If you don't, it's a heart issue because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And if in your heart this morning you would say, if you're honest with yourself, that I'm not sure where I stand with Jesus. I'm not sure if the righteousness I practice is kingdom right. I'm not sure. I invite you as we sing in just a moment, would you come and let us take the Bible and show you what it means to have the Jesus kind of righteousness in your heart so that you can be what you ought to be from the inside out. And if you're a believer and you're part of his family and you're one of his kingdom citizens today and you say, Pastor Walker, listen, I've been thinking about it the whole time. Listen, there's some areas of, I'm not salt. I'm not light. I'm not living out my identity. I'm not different than the world. And I may be almost like, more like religion than anything else. And I need to make some changes in my life. Listen, come and pray. Come and seek God. Do it where you are. Come here. Walking in aisle won't do anything. But maybe it will let you get some help with someone that can counsel you, pray with you, share your burden with you. Whatever God is working on in your heart through the Holy Spirit, you do that. You respond. Be a doer as we sing. Let's pray. Father, you already know our hearts, and it is foolish, ridiculous for us to try to hide anything from you. Your word is a two-edged sword that pierces even to the dividing of soul and spirit and joint, and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of our heart. You have been criticizing us all sermon long. And it was hard to hear and think of ways that you brought to our attention through your spirit, ways on the inside that we are not the righteous person that others may think we are. And for some of us, that means that we're not entering the kingdom. We really don't know him. It's only skin deep. Father, I pray that those who need it, by your grace and sovereign election today, as you would pull them to yourself, overcome the decay, overcome the darkness. Draw with cords of love those you have ordained to eternal life. 
draw them to yourself and let them know the forgiveness that you offer and the life that is in your name alone, that they might have a heart transplant today. For believers and disciples who have lost their distinctiveness, Jesus says, salt that is no longer salty is only good to be trodden under foot of men. Father, it's time we get out from under the feet of men and get before men with our good works that we do for your glory, that they might see you and us. May we do that as a church, may we do that as individuals, and may you give us a heart to do it for the right reasons that you might be magnified. Have your way now in our lives. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.